8 to 10 p.m. The Viewpoint with Ashraf Garda. The Viewpoint with Ashraf Garda. So as you know, we've had some of the most fascinating guests uh, in the last uh, few days, and it will continue as well with my guest today as our big hitter. We will talk about Venezuela uh, as part of our big picture story. And if you've been following the the late night drama, uh, Josie Dark, you will know uh, it reaches a finale, and finale always means climax. So do not miss that. Uh, it starts a bit earlier than normal, around 22, I've been told, 22 10 as opposed to quarter to 10. But that comes up later on. So Venezuela after nine Big hitter tonight is not a politician, as you may well expect. He's not a business person in South Africa. But if you ask me, does the person impact South Africa in terms of the the product or the service that he markets? The answer is absolutely yes. So here's a question to you. Have you heard of Microsoft? Like, put your hands up if you have, okay? And I'm just trying to imagine you not putting your hands up because I think we all have absolutely done that. Well, Peter De Benedictus is the Chief Marketing Officer for Microsoft um, in the Middle East and Africa region. You can follow him, in fact, on, on Twitter right away as Pete, as in P-E-T-E, Dubai. Pete, Dubai, which suggests that's where he's based. So he's telling us geographically where he's living. But for the next hour, he's with us. That's where he is at the SABC headquarters here in Auckland Park. Uh, Peter or Pete, good chatting to you and thanks for your time and um, agreeing to be our big hitter for the night. Awesome. It's really great to be here. I love coming to South Africa. As we talked about off air earlier, this is the third time I've been here just in this last year. It's one of my favorite stops in Middle East and Africa to come. So really pleased to be here with you. Good. And and am I correct that you are based in Dubai? Absolutely. So I, uh, I'm originally from the US. I moved as a teenager to a tiny little town in the desert in the 1980s. Uh, and Dubai has grown up around uh, around us, so it's it's been home for over thirty years. Okay, so so you've been part of of the Dubai journey. Absolutely, yes. All I've right. seen it come from that small town in the desert into you know this really global hub that it is today. Okay, so what what can we learn from that? I mean. We've been having a chat, and I've been a part of a WhatsApp group looking at comparisons of winning nations and looking at what's happening in Singapore, in South Korea, and worried about what South Africa can and should be doing. What what can we learn? I saw a picture of an airport in Dubai in the 80s. You would know it, like a, a one-room airport, yes. and you've seen it all. What can we learn from, from what's happened in Dubai? So I think it's a, it's a combination of uh, strategy and execution. So what the government in Dubai has done is had a, a really strong strategy around what their strengths are, where uh, exploiting the geography. Uh, it's right in the middle of three continents, Europe, Asia, and Africa. Uh, so exploiting its geography, exploiting what it does really well, coming up with a strategy that leverages the strengths uh, of the location, the city, its population, and, and then executing that flawlessly. There's been lots of pretenders to Dubai over the years, um, but they do the basics right. So for an example, if you are a doctor and you want to come into Dubai, mm-hmm. you can get your license within 30 days. In other markets uh, in the neighborhood, you can wait up to six or 12 months. Now, if you want to if you want to get people in the country, get uh, import talent, you got to make it fast, e- uh, easy, frictionless. And I think that's one of the things that got so, so done cutting well. out cutting out the red tape, cutting out the red tape, and also creating the right ecosystem. So, uh, one of the neighboring countries, I remember being there a couple of years ago, and they were saying they're going to bring in. Uh, and I used to work in healthcare. They were going to build a hospital and bring in a thousand doctors into the country. I said, "Wow, that's really interesting. That's great. How long does it take to get a license?" And they kind of looked at me, well, what do you mean? I said, well, how long does it take? I said, 
well, I know it takes 18 months. How are you going to deal with that? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, well, we'll fix that. I said, okay, that's great. Now, those 1,000 doctors which are coming from Europe, North America, from around the region, they're going to come with their families, right? Yes, yes, of course they'll mm-hmm. come with them. We want the families mm-hmm. to come here. Where are they going to go to school? Because their schools are currently at 110% capacity. Yeah. Oh, we'll build more schools. I said, well, if you haven't started building now, the doctors are going to have to leave their families at home, and they'll come later. Uh-huh. Okay, that's, now what about – and you start asking these questions and, and it, it's really – Dubai has been um, really the master of creating this whole ecosystem and executing it flawlessly. I would say the other thing they've done is constant improvement of government services. Um, if you want to get a visa for an employee, you have a business, you want to get your employee done, 24 hours you can actually get that uh, employee visa done in person in the country. You want to have a trade license, you can get that done within 48 hours. So this flawless execution of a strategy which leverages its strengths, I think, has been the secret sauce. Uh, they have a great airline, great hotels, uh, great infrastructure. The city is clean. Um, it, is, it has... Um, it has something for everybody, and I think that's what's kept it relevant. Accepting you can't be a citizen of Dubai, never mind that you live there for, unless you've got special rights. No, absolutely, but I think that is the, um, that's the value proposition of the country. Come here, uh, live, work, earn, save, and then when you're ready, go back home. And, and that's, the, that's the kind of the deal that you sign up for. Uh, some people do retire in Dubai. Uh, it's not cheap to retire in Dubai for sure, but that's kind of the deal that you sign up for. And I think they're very transparent about that. Mm. So I think if you've got transparency and you know what you're signing up for, then it's fine. And I, and I think that's one of the other things I that they've done as well. I think that's very important. So there we are. Uh, Peter de Benedictus, I could say the ambassador of Dubai uh, to South Africa, but I'll just change that because maybe <laughs> Sheikh Maktoum and company will argue with me about it. Chief Marketing Officer for Microsoft, of course, is a global company uh, for the Middle East and Africa region. So here it is from talking about one Massive success story in terms of incredible growth, which is Dubai and, and whatever else goes on around the United Arab Emirates, to, to talking about another incredible company, which is, which is Microsoft, right? So you're in, in an in a envious position of being the chief marketing officer for, for these regions. So when you, when you encounter people and you either give them your business card or whatever it is that you tell them that you're with Microsoft and what you do, what's, what's the most common first response you get? First, usually as well, what a great company, mm-hmm. um, which is true. I, I, it's a real privilege to be part of this great company and part of the, 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 the current history and, and, and the future. It is a, a company that has really um, transformed itself, particularly in the last five years. Um, I love the mission statement of the company, em- empowering and enabling peop- all people and all organizations on the planet to achieve more. I think that's an, an amazing mission. How do we help people, organizations, to be all they want to be? How do we help them expire, uh, es- reach their aspirations? And how can technology be an enabler? So being part of that is an amazing privilege. Um, the commercial success of the company, particularly in the last few years, has been really phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and when, when people then encounter you, what's the one word they use to describe uh, Microsoft. Because, I mean, there would be an adjective that would attach next, next to it, right? What would that be? In, innovation and in, innovative. And the, the history of the company, uh, particularly in the last five years, has really about, been about innovation, that Microsoft is now at the cutting ed- edge of this new world that we're living in. When you're talking about cloud, when you talk about artificial intelligence, people see Microsoft as a real vanguard and a leader. Uh, they look at our CEO, Satya Nadella, as one of the, the best CEOs mm-hmm. in the world. Uh, and so it, it's really a um, 
for me and for our colleagues in the region, it's a sense of pride that we work for the company and to be a, really a, a, a part of this great innovative organization that is constantly reinventing itself. Mm-hmm. So yourself and being the, the chief marketing officer, I mean, and correct me where I'm wrong, if I'm wrong here, you, you're in the business of, of what marketing and branding the brand, uh, but you're not in the back office creating the ideas, right? So it's an interesting question because it is a global company. It is a well-known brand, but we always need to be locally relevant. So I think there's a combination of taking global campaigns and ideas and products and services that are developed largely for for the um, for developed markets, but are equally relevant here in the region. So our job within our marketing organization across Middle East and Africa is to make sure that, that glo- those global campaigns will resonate and are relevant uh, to the market here. So I think it's a combination of, uh, of the two. Yes, global messaging, global products, global solutions, but also locally relevant, locally uh, interesting, solving local problems for local businesses. Which, which obviously brings me to the next question. Like, So what are you doing in South Africa? There must be a reason besides holidays. So I ju- we just came off a two-day event uh, called the Microsoft Ignite Tour, uh, where we in, uh, invest a considerable amount of money to enable uh, learning and training for developers and IT professionals for free to come and spend two days with Microsoft to learn about our various cloud solutions. That will be Azure, our, our primary cloud product, for uh, our Windows and Office products, which we have bundled together mm-hmm. now into Microsoft 365, and then our ERP and CRM product, which is called Dynamics. And these IT pros and developers have come, and they sp- we had 3,000 developers here in, in Johannesburg. So 3,000 3, from this people country, yeah. coming in, and not just from the company, uh, from South Africa, but from around Southern Africa. I was just talking to someone uh, this afternoon, 400 people uh, alone from Nigeria. So people are coming from all over Africa. So you can see the hunger and the appetite to upskill, to learn, to uh, embrace this new world we're entering with, where cloud mm. and artificial intelligence. Absolutely. Mach- and what, what's interesting about that is that you, in fact, uh, where you sit, uh, you know, part, part of your marketing uh, thrust would be to, to get people, to invest in people using Microsoft products, which is exactly what you've just done, right? Yeah. So, yes, there's a... Um, there's an element that we want people to be able to use our products. And why is that? Because our customers in the region are wanting to digitally transform and embrace this new digital age. We could, I could do a thousand campaigns about the benefits of shifting to cloud. But if you don't have the skills in the market, particularly developers who can actually shift their data to the cloud, you need, you need quite a lot of skill to do that. We would not be successful. So it's a combination of... Um, wanting to help our customers, but also help the market to lift the skills. So I, I think it's a combination of the two. And I think it's also a little bit of our duty as a good corporate citizen to give back a little bit to the community, to help make people um, realize the potential of the cloud, potential of artificial intelligence, to also what I talked about earlier, how do we help enable every organization, every individual to be more 
uh, and to achieve their dreams. Particularly in a, in a local territory. Yeah, more, I, more, and more you, to come. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll pick up on that in a second. Peter Der Benedictus is with me. He's the Chief Marketing Officer uh, for Microsoft, uh, particularly in the in the Middle East and Africa region, so territories that are particularly important to us, right? Uh, you can engage him, 891 uh, Often we talk socio-political issues. Some may say, well, let's talk about what's the cloud. I don't know. I think I know. But you may want to ask that question and, and just talk about issues like uh, artificial intelligence and the and, and 4IR and a whole lot more in terms of maybe the genesis of Microsoft itself from where it was to the challenges they face and maybe you face as well uh, getting into the future. So 089 that's the call in number, male, female, wherever you may be in the country and outside. You have the option to tweet us as always, hashtag SAFM Viewpoint and you tag me, Ashraf Garda, as well as SAFM Radio. Uh, you can also tag Microsoft as well. I'm sure they'll pick it up as well as my guest, uh, which is Pete, P-E-T-E, Pete Dubai, D-U-B-A-R. Well, I'm sure you know how to spell all of that. Uh, the other option is to SMS us 40938. Um, and the f- last option is WhatsApp voice notes, which uh, if you're doing that, please maximum 30 uh, seconds each. Otherwise, we can't play them. It's 0614-104-107. So 0614-104-107. That's for WhatsApp voice notes. More to come with Peter De Benedictus talking Microsoft in the world in South Africa right after this. Catch Summer on Free, where music brings people together this festive season. With a little help from RJ Benjamin, JR, Kube Kombata, Toko Zombambo, Slick Angel, Tamara Day, Brendam Tambo, Nomvundo Kaluva, Zano, Good Luck, Tandin Tuli, and Louise Carver. We bring the SABC3 stage to life. Visit our social media pages to see when your favorite is on our stage. Festive season music specials on SABC3. Get ready for the most high-octane, extreme adventure reality dating show on TV. I'm just a flirt. I'm trying not to be hurt again. I love to be loved. As 16 ordinary, single South Africans embark on an epic journey. She's afraid of water, afraid of heights, and afraid of commitment. How soon do I get married? Tomorrow. A journey to face their fears in grueling challenges. I came here to find love, and now love is really challenging me. Contact losing, I'm not one all time. And ultimately, a journey to find love. How's it going to be like for your family to accept an interracial relationship? Yes, I'm falling. I was doomed from day one. Love is love. It comes in all forms, shapes, sizes. You epitomize everything that's gone in my life. Catch all the drama, adrenaline and romance in an all-new, all-South African format. The longest date starts 11 February at 7.30pm only on SABC3. At SAFM Radio and at Ashraf Garda on Twitter. So Peter or Peter Benedictus with me, Chief Marketing Officer at Microsoft in the Middle East and Africa regions, 0891-104207. So here's some questions. Um, well, one comment regarding Dubai. If you're poor, you cannot contribute. You will be turned away. Uh, UAE. Uh, and, and that point there from Max, right? Uh, another one... Uh, Ashraf, thanks for inviting a person of this caliber to your show. Just a few of the issues that he has touched on, such as granting a doctor a license in 30 days, are far from being considered in this country from uh, in Sikana. Well, absolutely. Well, thank Ben Zito, my producer, for, doing the, the, for, for connecting us on air. But absolutely, I take your point. We can learn from that. If you want to be a global player, you need to be able to uh, cut out those closed doors. That's it. So here's someone who certainly knows about cloud. Why cloud if I use Dropbox? So maybe a good time to explain 
I'm assuming many people know what the cloud is, but we also have to assume many people do not know. So what is cloud? And then we'll make the comparison to Dropbox. So the best way I would think to visualize in your head what the cloud is, imagine there is a warehouse where you can put whatever data that you would like. And instead of that sitting physically in your own home or in your own office or your own server, mm -hmm. it's sitting somewhere else. And you transmit that data there, it's stored there, it's safe, it's secure. You've got hundreds of the very best software engineers, like your guards, your security guards, guarding that data night and day, protecting it from invaders. Uh, and there are invaders out there looking at what we say bad actors, mm. looking to do harm and to get to your data, your private data, your banking information. And we've, we've made this warehouse virtually impregnable. And once you have that data in that warehouse, it's virtually uh, unlimited computing power because we take that data warehouse and we connect it to all our other data warehouses and then we leverage the power of that computing power. We combine it all together and what we would call that ubiquitous computing power. Mm. And then you get data scientists who write really powerful algorithms to then put that data to work for you. Uh, it is incredibly um, enabling uh, and this is what has really um, spawned this age of artificial intelligence that we're entering into. I, I, I we certainly touched on that. Let, let's help us understand this. I, mean, I think you explained it well about this warehouse. So when this ha warehouse is not on the ground, but, but physically somewhere, well, where, where is it, in fact, to, to help people who don't quite get it understand it? So it's a physical premise. So instead of you, have, you very often will walk past uh, in an office a room, which has got lots of big computers, mm -hmm. and that's a server room. So rather than you having one small server room with your IT manager in that office, we actually hook up hundreds of servers in a very safe, secure, physical environment. And it can be in your country or it can be off in another, another market, but the same safety and security is there no matter where that data center is located. So it's really, it's, it is a physical, but we call it the cloud because you imagine you're, you're sending data somewhere. So you say it's mm. the cloud, but it's a physical, very secure premise. In fact, when we build data centers, most employees are not allowed to know the location of those data centers, specifically for this reason and to enhance security. So it is... Um, it is the safest place your data can go. Well, there you are. Now, now, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, cl cloud has been around, what, for about 10 years or so, maybe? Is it even longer? Oh, e even longer. I okay, mean, but, but certainly popularity, certainly from our point, I think it's become a byword, uh, maybe just, just about a decade, maybe even less for us, right? How, how has it changed people's lives? Meaning, what were they doing before in terms of this all-important storage from a physical storage to storing things on a phone or a computer that doesn't quite enough, have enough space to where they're putting it now. Yeah, so historically, what organizations would do is that they would buy a server and they put it in their room. They'd hire an IT manager. Mm -hmm. And depending on the qualifications, that IT manager, their purchasing department, they would just store that on-premises, which is what we say we call it on-prem today. They would, you would have the data in your office, and you would push all of your data that you put with your ERP system, your supply chain information, your emails, everything would sit on your own standalone server. That worked really well for many, many years. I remember, in fact, in the 80s, uh, before I moved to Dubai, my dad uh, was in banking in New York, and he was the operations lead for a, a, a small American bank. And I'd go in the office, and you would walk into this mm -hmm. huge room, ice cold, air conditioned, so that, <laughs> with all these massive servers. 
Uh, and that's how things have run really since the 80s. And banking is a big data uh, producer. And so banks were very often in the forefront. Governments and banks very much in the forefront of the initial wave uh, of leveraging servers. Now, over the next 10 years, you don't need to have your IT, that huge IT infrastructure, which is super expensive. The cloud age is basically pay as you go. So you can consume only as much uh, data and pay for as much data as you need. What often has happened, what we've seen with customers, is they, they overbuy, over-anticipating the data they need. Then they've got all this capacity that they don't need. They waste a lot uh, of money, investment, capex that can be put into other things like serving their customers better. So the cloud really empowers a change in business model, a change in how you think about IT, and, and really transform your financial model from a capex, capital expenditure model, to an operating pay-as-you-go model. Okay. And that, is, that for a CFO or a, f- a finance manager or an over- owner of a small business, that is super exciting. And, and it's also backed up. I mean, that, that point about, you know, uh, in, in this cabinet that can get burnt, it's, it's automatically backed uh, yeah. up. So there's another point there. Right? Absolutely. And, and also, if you're the owner of a, a small or medium-sized, even a large business, do you want to depend on the competency of your CIO, your IT manager, the technicians in your office who may be very good? Or do you want to rely on a provider who's got hundreds if not thousands of the best software engineers in the world building this really impregnable data warehouse. Well, it's something for us all to consider. Continue to chat to the Chief Marketing Officer for Microsoft in the Middle East and Africa region. His name is Peter De Benedictus. You can engage anytime. You know that. 0891-104-207. I understand not everybody may be tech geeks here, but particularly I'm interested in the points that we speak about often around innovation uh, for IR, that, that industrial revolution, whenever that's going to be, um, artificial intelligence, and how that changes our country and how that changes your position in terms of employment. And if it's not you, then what about your children and how do you embrace uh, all of that? I've asked for voice notes as well, 0614-104-107, maximum 30 seconds. Here's one of them. Good evening, Ashraf and the listeners. My name is Charlie. I'm a professional nurse. And I wanted to ask Pete about... AI helping us in terms of minimizing the time spent by nurses on admin, which is like 30% of the time we spent with patients. Um, And how can we prevent leaking of patients' information with all this digitalization of information? Thank you. Okay, got that. Thank you for that. We'll take another. I'll get to Gerald in a second. Answer that question. Yeah, so it's interesting. So healthcare is one of those use cases that we often think about, the power Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. artificial intelligence. And I I think I touched on earlier, I worked in the healthcare industry for a number of years. So one one live example that uh, I know a a hospital operator is is exploring now is to use our uh, platform called Teams. It's a collaboration tool. And Imagine a, a situation where all of the patient records on a ward are in one place. So all the medical records, all the tests, all the radiology exams, all the medication that is required for the patient is all in one place. Everybody on that in a secure environment where every nurse, every doctor that is working on that patient has access to that information. Imagine the amount of medical errors that can be reduced, Mm -hmm. the amount of um, alerts that can be done. This patient's BP, 
is dropping. We need to go and check. This patient didn't get his medication on time. Let's go and check. The, the, one of the key things, particularly in the U.S., is uh, unforced medical errors, things that happen yeah. where patients actually are harmed in the hospital as a result of human error. Now, imagine if you're able to remove that, leveraging the power of artificial intelligence and the power of these productivity tools. So they're exploring this now. This is one really live example. And this would, to your, to your caller's point, this would reduce dramatically the admin because you don't have reams and reams of paper and forms that you need to fill in. It happens all in, in real time. So the caregivers can actually focus on what they're supposed to be doing, which is improving the health and well-being well, of the well, patients. I think those, uh, those legal people around uh, medical malpractice may argue against uh, the, <laughs> the, the rapid uh, speed around uh, artificial intelligence, but the rest of us, we certainly agree with you. It's absolutely important. Uh, Gerald, let's get, uh, let's get your thoughts. Hi, Gerald. Look, I'm probably going to ask you just a very tough question. I appreciate uh, him coming here to market his products and uh, I'm all for globalization, and I'm all for the benefits of it. But there's always the issue that confronts IT companies like um, Microsoft, like Amazon, uh, like Apple. You know, it's the issue of tax avoidance. And while it's great to market your products in a country, most uh, companies have pay 28% uh, company tax. And most of these companies that are in this kind of high-end IT business uh, go to extraordinary lengths to avoid that. And... Um, what it ends up is that ordinary citizens like us carry the can for them uh, to create environment for them to market their products and make excessive amounts of product. Uh, so, so can I can I say, and I'm paraphrasing, then we'll get a response, right? That effectively, what you're saying is these global companies uh, come in and like like big chain stores in shopping centres, they come in at the best rental um, and, and therefore I exploit it because they are at an advantage compared to the rest of the world. I mean, no, no, no it's, it? just, it's, just, it's, no, it's just the fairness of paying tax. I mean, if you order create, create a, a world where, where everyone's got great opportunities and we, we create equal opportunity societies, we, we must, you know, the tax burden must be spread evenly. Now, many multinationals, and it's really been uh, uh, the tech companies, have gone to extraordinary lengths to avoid paying tax. And what that means is that when you've got big multinationals paying sometimes 10 or 12 percent less uh, uh, tax on, by, by shifting profits to tax havens, it ends up that ordinary citizens then uh, finance the infrastructure for these companies to, uh, to operate in. And, 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 you know, it's no use talking about the benefits you're doing because, really, if you want to help people, and particularly if you want to help the poor, the best place to start is by paying your tax. Okay, got that. Share. Gerald, thank you, thank you for that. Uh, respond to that? So, uh, first of all, uh, thanks for the question. Uh, I would not by any means claim to be an expert on Microsoft's global tax uh, policy and where we pay and who we pay what to. However, what I would say is as an organization, we invest and reinvest a ton into upskilling and elevating the communities that we operate in. I alluded to that earlier uh, just two days ago uh, in in Santon Convention Center where we had 3,000 developers learning about our products and we didn't charge a penny for those people to come in and learn. That's one example. We are a global sponsor and locally activate Hour of Code to go into elementary schools and high schools to teach uh, students the very basic fundamentals about uh, software, not just Microsoft software, but in using IT in general. So I think it's a fair point that uh, I wouldn't want to claim to be an expert about tax, 
But as a company, as we talked about earlier, we're here to enable every person, every organization on the planet to do more. And one of the ways that we do that is by reinvesting. And I think the best way to get from where you are today as, as a population, as a community, as a society, is through education and upskilling. And I would say we have a very strong track record mm. in doing that. Well, what do you say then about the critics, the skeptics, not necessarily general, but whoever else who, who says that, yes, we know, we know who Microsoft are, but in, in many ways it's a – it's a modern form of, of colonization. You come in, uh, you you make profit, you help, you you certainly provide the free entry to your fantastic um, uh, event as you did the other day. But but in effect, you you then take over markets and then start dictating and, and set an agenda, and we don't even know that. You know, it's an interesting perspective. It's not one that I share. Uh, for example, we are investing a considerable amount of money to build a data center here in South Africa, which will go online in 2019. We recently did a study to show the impact uh, of that data center, and we'll be creating thousands and thousands of jobs through this ecosystem just by investing in the data center. So if you talk about giving back to a community, what I would say there's two things you can do. You can educate people to uh, improve their skills, and the second is you can help foster job creation. I don't know any. Other, I don't know a better way mm. to mm. uplift a society than arm them, teach them how to fish, and secondly, arm them and create an ecosystem where they can do more, be more, and actually get jobs and find uh, gainful employment. And we're doing both of those in a very meaningful way right here in South Africa. Okay, and that point, so you may not be the CEO, the CFO of Microsoft worldwide or even South Africa, but but the point about about getting you know unfair tax breaks. You're in marketing, so ultimately you'll be responsible for the reputation of, of, of the company. Yeah, absolutely. I think the reputation is, port is important. I would not tar uh, all multinationals with the same brush. Uh, however, I, I, as, I, as I said, our mission is to give back to the communities, empower every person and every any organization on the planet to be more. And we do that through education and we do that through job creation. I think we have a very strong record in that area, but I wouldn't like to comment uh, about what other organizations or other people do uh, with their business. But that's what we do at Microsoft. But, but your conscience is clear? Absolutely. For now. All right. Oh, wait, 9-1-1-0-4-2-0-7. Peter De Benedictus, the Chief Marketing Officer at Microsoft in the Middle East and Africa region. Let's talk about how Microsoft has evolved. Of course, you know, uh, you say Microsoft, historically, we say Bill Gates, and, and he's, of course, been a, a regular visitor to our country for a whole range of other issues around his foundation. Uh, how is Microsoft? I mean, you have touched on what you're doing now, but overall, as a global company with global challenges, how have you evolved? So... You're quite right. Many people, when they think about Microsoft, they think about Windows and they think about mm. Bill Gates, the, the formerly the world's richest man and the, the ubiquitous operating system that is pretty much in 90% of all businesses around the world. Um, but the world is changing. And uh, so as a company, we've transformed ourselves. And I would say, apart from the technology, apart from the codes, apart from the cloud and so on, the one fundamental change for our company has been our culture. Since our CEO Satya Nadella came in, uh, one of the big mantras for him is uh, to hit refresh, to change yourself, to become a, um, a learner, and not a knower. And I think that has been a big shift in our, in our company, particularly where you had, as you touched on earlier, high market share, ubiquitous products proliferated mm -hmm. all over the world. I mean, let's be honest, though, the, um, the Microsoft uh, story is a phenomenal one. But it, all good things come to an end, and you have to con 
constantly evolve, constantly refresh, and I think that's what we've done as a company o- over the last five years. So, so if I, if I go back to, I mean, you touched on Windows, and I, if I go back to the time that I started using it, like Windows 95 at that stage, yes. right, and, and the big hoo-ha about it, like a new product launch, what for you makes Microsoft unique now? Like so, what, what's the big global selling point? So I think as I, I, would, I would touch on a couple of things. One, this whole idea of growth mindset where you want to be a learner, a lifetime learner rather than a lifetime knower. That, that, that's very powerful because when you come then into a conversation with a customer, you come to a, with a consumer, you come from a, a mindset of let me learn more about you. How can I help you? As opposed to let me tell you what I'm going to do for you. It's a very different approach. It's very, very different internally. So people can, are a lot more open to, to hearing from others. They're a lot more open to understanding an alternative point of view like we've had today. On, mm-hmm. on, on the, mm-hmm. there's, there's many points of view and, uh, and being constantly curious, constantly want to learn, I think is the single biggest change in Microsoft. Apart from the product portfolio, apart from the transformation in our business model, the biggest change for us has been the culture. And as somebody who is relatively new to the company over the last couple of years. Well, you've been here about two years. Yes, yeah. absolutely. I, I felt it immediately that there is a, a shift in, in how the company a- approaches things. There's a joke that we're the world's largest startup now because we're entering a, ho- a, a, a world <laughs> and a market where we don't actually know what's going to happen in is, six months. Is the year. mindset that then that, because I mean, you made the point about the CEO saying, hit the refresh button. So, A, how often do you, as a company, hit the refresh button? And, and is the mentality this just that, that like almost every month we're beginning again? Yeah, I, I think you, you come with what I would say is a challenger mindset, that you don't own the market. You're in a market today, if you look at the total cloud market globally, it's $4.5 trillion. We're a $100 billion company all up. Look at the opportunity that is in there for us as well as for the entire industry to continue to grow, to continue to enable people, as I said, it's, it's almost a limitless opportunity. And that market is growing at 1% to 2% per month. Uh, and, and so, yes, it, you, you wake up every day and say, there is a long runway ahead of us. We, we have not, we're far from hitting the finish line. And I think that is very invigorating for folks like me who market our products, for our engineers who develop the software, for our commercial teams who are out there with our customers every day. Uh, and hopefully it's exciting for the, those customers and consumers as well. Wow, we're actually, there's a world of limitless possibilities mm-hmm. out there that we had not really thought well, about Well, I'm particularly before. interested about you know that issue of IA, which you've touched on in, in the fourth industrial revolution and how that is indeed changing our lives. We'll get to that in just a moment, continuing to chat to the Chief Marketing Officer for Microsoft in the Middle East and Africa region. More from him. He's our big hitter for the night right after this. What is going on with you guys just thinking, okay, I'll take the fish from the sea and I'll just put it in my mouth? <laughs> <laughs> very similar to it. Um, the concept of Japanese food is very much like a get the best out of material or ingredients. So definitely fresher the better. So sushi is a part of it. Who owns sushi? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a Japanese cuisine, but it's a Japanese food. It has a heavy influence from China mm-hmm. and Korea. Mm-hmm. But sushi, especially eating raw fish or raw food, is uh, very much our culture. Yes, Naito, the consultant in trade, marketing and research, especially with Japanese businesses in South Africa. Saturdays and Sundays, 10 to 1 p.m., the world stage with Shadow Twala.
8 to 10 p.m. The Viewpoint with Asraf Gada. I certainly want to talk about the uh, the marketing and the entrenchment and doing business between, say, South Africa, not just Dubai, but the rest of the Middle East, all the other countries, because maybe Dubai is not so typical of what goes on in the Middle East. With my guest, uh, Peter De Benedictus from Microsoft, Chief Marketing Officer for the Middle East and, and Africa. 891 There's a couple more SMSs. I'll pick up 40938. If you wish to voice note us, maximum 30 seconds um, by WhatsApp. That is 614 but also you can tweet us using hashtag SAFM Viewpoint and then tag me, Ashraf Ganda, as well as uh, SAFM Radio. So, okay, as we then, first of all, when we talk 4IR, so is 4IR a date? And I'm just thinking about Microsoft and the concerns around the year 2000, you know, Y2K. Is, is 4IR a date where it's going to start and end on a certain day or is it? Is it happening already? Are you different views on that? Sorry, 4IR? Four, the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Ah, Fourth. Yeah. Okay. So, so look, I think it's already here. If you think about uh, people talk about uh, artificial intelligence, IoT, Internet of Things, mm. machine learning, it's already happening today. There's four key areas of uh, AI uh, vision, so computer sensors, seeing like human beings, mm. Speech recognition, so understanding uh, talking and language instead of ambient noise, understanding what language someone's speaking in, and finding around learning, machines learning, and then teaching themselves new things. That's happening today. Those four areas, computers can do that at the same level as human beings right now today. So this 4IR, as you you mentioned, it's here today, uh, and it's happening in ways that... You'd be very surprised. Uh, there's a lot of things happening at the back end that you won't even know about. So it's here. And the, the, the challenge for many customers, many consumers, is really recognizing, yes, it's here. How do I be a part of that? And, and then we're entering a period of, I would say, a lot of tech intensity. If you think about your own mm-hmm. personal life, I mean, we were, I just landed here yesterday. 150 WhatsApp messages on my phone, another 50 <laughs> emails. That's intense for an individual. Imagine you scale that across an entire population. So I think if people feel that tech intensity, the best way I know on how to, to do that, as a guy in my 40s, you know, starting to get a little longer in the tooth than I was, is to embrace it. Under, understand the tools and then build your skills. What happens if you don't embrace it? If you say, as many people, and, and they could be 40, but they could be 60 and 50, like, I don't need this nonsense. This is just somebody else's problem. So look, change cha- change is always a little bit hard. It's hard no matter what age uh, you're in. It's hard for my toddlers. It's hard for my, uh, my grandparents uh, and my in-laws and my parents. But I think change is, it's a bit like trying to hold back the ocean. It is going to come. Uh, and it's a matter of how, how much you as an individual, as an organization, want to ride that change, be ahead of the change, or get swept up by the wave and have it uh, overcome you. So basically saying there's no choice. Well. If you don't ride the wave. If you want to, the way I, I look at it, uh, imagine the um, turn of the century, particularly I think in the U.S. where I'm mm. from, you had the uh, horse-drawn carriages. Uh, and now the horse-drawn carriage drivers saw the automobile coming as a fad, uh, and, and look what happened. Now, you can stay driving your horse-drawn carriage, um, but how long are you going to stay relevant? And look what happened, eventually become obsolete. So I think it is a challenge for human beings in general to embrace change, embrace new technology. But at the same time, I also think it's very easy. Look at smartphones. 
you know, I would say 10 years ago, this was something that many people, it was a luxury. Now it's become ubiquitous. It's a part of everyday life. In fact, they've kind of disappeared. You don't even notice them anymore. And I think if you think about the internet, the internet has also just become something that's part of everyday life. I think artificial intelligence, advanced machine learning, it's going to be one of those things as well. well. Yeah, I'm a talk show, so I don't just talk as you can actually observe. There's two phones in front of me. There's a whole lot of technology. You can talk, tweet, take pictures, video clips, all of that happens. Samir Jasmai, who's 66, says, listening to your guest at the present, technology is the portal into the future and to relevance. Uh, that's, and as I repeatedly say, Cognitive flexibility at 66, I say, bring it on. So certainly they have one adherent, I think is in the legal field, but that, that's, that's just fantastic. Awesome. You, you, I, I picked up a piece that, that you, you posted on, on LinkedIn, um, around, uh, and, and you touched on earlier on, around health, but the issue of, of one can be diagnosed just, just using modern technology without the normal screening as we would understand it. I mean, it's just, literally from a distance, to say that's what's wrong with you, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's all kind. Look, we're at the early days of artificial intelligence, whether it be healthcare or any other industry. Um, if you think about radiology today, radiology is still primarily done in the same way it does when the X-ray was evolved. It's highly dependent on a very trained radiologist looking at a picture and leveraging his years and decades of training and experience to find something in that picture that doesn't look quite right. He sits in a very dark room and he reads that image. Now imagine, and he's doing it from his mm. brain comparing to other images he's seen. Now imagine if instead of the radiologist in the room comparing to his own you know, human mind what he can remember, you could upload that image into a database of millions of cases of people with the same genomic footprint is you the same market the same place you grew up the same and then let the machine do the reading for you and then the doctor is still there to double check and make sure the machine learning has correctly diagnosed but the speed the power the capacity to improve medical diagnosis in that scenario is massive and i think these are the things that are that should get people excited about the power of technology and the power uh, of artificial intelligence that can come and less so about well the, about the negative downsides because yeah so so how do you respond when a person says power of technology equals less jobs for you and I? I think in uh, the same example that I gave earlier, there were horse-drawn cabbies uh, who were put out of business. Uh, however, other jobs were created that didn't exist before, taxi drivers and motor cars. So with every change and disruption, there are people who get impacted for sure. But as I touched on earlier, uh, by investing in a data center in, in, this, uh, in this country, we're going to create tens of thousands of jobs which didn't exist before. So I think there is a trade-off and there is some disruption and there is some friction and people require new skills. But it's not, that's not true for just IT. That's true for motor cars. That's true for manufacturing. Many industries, all industries, in fact, I would say, go through transformation over time. Well, you need to have that conversation with yourself in terms of what are the skills you have, what else do you need to embrace, and where are you going. Here's, a, here's another voice note that, I, that I've got. Good evening, Ashraf, to you and the listeners and to the Microsoft Chief uh, Marketing Officer. Uh, well, I own a small business and I want to know how does one become a Microsoft partner? Thank you. 
quite quite simple. Yeah, it's a great example. I think you need to uh, get in touch with Microsoft. Uh, there's an entire program that we can help uh, put you through. Uh, you can tweet me uh, at, at P2Buy after, and I can share the details. The, the main thing I would say is, is you need the right kind of people, the right kind of skills to deliver the right kind of service to our customers, and eventually will be your customers. Uh, and we're open for business. I mean, we're looking to always recruit well, you know, uh, well-educated, well-staffed uh, organizations to help us to uh, expand and grow in the market. I would think the other question others may well ask is like, we're an NGO or we're a startup business and we can't afford your software around your 365. How can we get it when we don't have the money? Well, I, that's an interesting point. I think there there is an investment required, but we've made it so much simpler now for small businesses to invest. For example, you don't have to pay for a license up front. You can consume as you go. You do not have to buy a minimum of X number of licenses. You can buy one single license for a single user, and you can pay by month. Now, yes, you're paying that. In some cases, you're paying it in, in a foreign currency. It may be a challenge for some. However, the benefits long-term of that uh, software, I think, far will pay for itself in the long term. Uh, you also don't need to get the Rolls-Royce version of our software. There's many uh, lower-end SKUs to just do the very basic things like email uh, to get you onto the cloud and, and pay for that. And uh, That most small businesses can, can afford and do afford, in fact, uh, across the region. So absolutely, trying to buy the Rolls-Royce High end. Mm. It's not for everyone, but that's true. I would think for if you're for most you're, things. Yeah. yeah. Are they? Are they? If, if people wish to contact you, can 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 they do so? Yeah, By, absolutely. You know? My my Twitter uh, address at P Dubai. Feel free to reach out to me. I may not have all the answers, but one thing I'm. Okay. So besides Twitter, email. Uh, yeah, but you know, I think Twitter is probably the easiest. Okay. Well, I get that message. So goes straight to my inbox. P E T E Pete Dubai D U B A. Hi. Uh, here's another question. Well, the other point about the Dropbox, somebody making the point, of course, Dropbox is free versus Microsoft uh, uh, in terms of your cloud. Um, here's another one. Evening, Ashraf. Humility, development, innovation, philanthropy. A few words that come to mind as I listen to your interview uh, this evening. Bill Gates is one of my heroes from Dr. Phil. Uh, Dr. Phil, as in not the American Dr. Phil, <laughs> but the South African version, Dr. Phil Mahuma from uh, Midstream. So there we are. That, that's, a, that's a lovely uh, acknowledgement there. Let's, let's touch on... You know, business in the Middle East in general, not just Dubai. I mean, I take it if you're marketing it for Middle East and Africa, it's, it's all those countries that make up the Middle East. Now, sadly, when we talk Middle East, we think besides Dubai, we think volatility. What What's it like? So it's interesting. My family uh, in the U.S. often ask me the same question. So how can you be in Dubai for so long in that area where there's always seems to be uh, some kind of hotspot? I would say that's true. To an extent, you know, you do have volatility, but you have volatility in many regions around the world. Uh, what I have found in my 30 plus years in the Middle East, that people are all the same. Uh, there are different challenges in different markets. But generally speaking, most people wake up in the morning looking to do good, looking to create a better life for themselves and their family. And I found that when I go to Egypt, whether I go to Morocco, whether I go to Saudi Arabia, whether I go to Pakistan or Turkey or any place in the, in the region, people are people and people are generally the same no matter where they and, come from. And doing from. business with, with those people or those companies? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we do business. But what, with, what's it like? I mean, what's, what are the differences? So I'll, I'll give an example. Uh, for an American... Uh, if you tell them it's it's ten dollars, it's ten dollars, and that's the price, yeah. and they'll pay it. And <laughs> in the Middle East, ten dollars, Habibi, 
Is it $2. really ten dollars? Can we try it too? Well, no, we're not going to do it too. So negotiation uh, is just a part of daily life. I remember the first time I went into a store in the U.S. and they told me the price. Said, hey, "Is there any discount?" They looked at me like I was an alien from another planet. But that's a normal part of doing business. But, but let me ask you this then: you know, that's one thing when you're going store to store to buy things yourself, right? But but what about Microsoft? Sure. You know, does the same apply? Sure, absolutely. Every customer is interested in getting the best deal possible for themselves, uh, and that's not true just for the Middle East. That's true all over the world. Uh, and I think what we try to do is demonstrate the value of our products, how we can. Uh, really enable that organization. As I said, I keep coming back to that. How do how does our technology and software enable you to get where you want to go? Uh, and I and I think we've found that customers around the world see great value for our products, great, great value for money. Do they like to negotiate? Absolutely. Do they like to negotiate <laughs> a little bit more in the Middle East? Uh, yes, but we, we also see that here in this market as well. People like a good deal. Well, there you are. We can negotiate with you as well. Let's get a, let's get to another call, Dr. Uh, Matiku on the line. Welcome to the show, and what's, what's your viewpoint? Uh, good evening, Ashraf, good evening. Uh, and uh, good evening, Pete. Sorry, I just... Uh, Knocked off from the hospital and I was just listening to SAFM uh, towards going to my house. And uh, I liked the concept that uh, Peter was talking about of fourth industrial revolution. One, um, I'm using a paperless um, practice system where uh, I use, uh, what is this now, a tablet to take down the notes uh, or medical record or clinical records of the patient. And uh, that is actually saved on uh, a cloud as well. So, and I can access it 24-7. However, uh, there is another innovation that I have come up with. I've registered intellectual property with CIPRO, uh, where by, uh, it's, it's called, um, it's time diagnostic, uh, tri- tri- diagnostic uh, system. It's a triage system where a patient comes into the practice as he's sitting on the chair. Um, the chair should be able to send data to me on my tablet, that the patient's estimated weight is so much, the blood pressure is so much, and uh, the sugar is so much, um, and uh, possibly we can actually add on to say, you know, do, you know, what is this now, Uh, uh, Mm. non-invasive HIV screen. So now that, the chair, as well as the bed, where the patient is lying in the ward, so each and every patient bed should transmit the data to my tablet, and then I can be able to see how they, 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 I can actually assess the um, the risk score okay. uh, of the patient. You know the agency that we need to you know attend right. to just, the patient. Just pause, yes. pause there. Let's just check. You, you, can you answer that? So yeah. if he's asking as a as a concept, I mean there there is an entire. Uh, industry emerging within healthcare, uh, particularly around home healthcare, where something exactly along the lines you're talking about, whether it's a chair, whether it's sensors that um, a patient wears, whether it be information coming from a smartwatch or a smartphone that can be transmitted to a hospital uh, and where um, a doctor or healthcare pr- pr- practitioner can find you know find out what that's going on with that patient and if some parameters go out of whack or start becoming alarming they can immediately take action so that's a little bit more around preventive medicine particularly with the elderly mm. rather than um waiting for something bad to happen so i think there there's an entire industry uh, emerging around this how do you take sensors 
big data analytics and artificial intelligence to inform better patient better patient care and preventive care so the healthcare industry with with respect has been largely about reacting to symptoms and to disease what we're talking about here is preventive and actually being proactive before something bad happens which is great yeah let's talk about the other important issue around you know privacy and and uh, uh, and protection of information it's 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 a critically important part there was an element of trust that that needs to happen thanks for that thanks for that uh, call dr uh, matiku right yeah absolutely thank you, thank you. so thanks, so yeah. yeah so even in this example right you're talking about patient data going being transmitted mm. the privacy of that and the protection of the privacy of that i think is a fundamental human right whether it be your email address your patient records your bank details how much information how much money you have in the bank account where you have worked and you should be able to control that and i think for us as an organization we believe that's a fundamental human right that that information is yours and it should stay yours and you should only share it where you uh, where you're feeling comfortable where you've opted in uh, I, I think there was a little bit of talk about free products where mm-hmm. you know, oh, we're offering the product for free. And what I would tend to say, and this is not disparaging about anybody or any company in particular, if you're getting something for free, most like, and that product is free, most likely you are the product. Uh, and that company is giving that for free so they can monetize your privacy and uh, your private information. That is fundamentally something that we do not do. Uh, we believe that privacy is a fundamental right of an individual. Uh, it can be a little frustrating for me as a marketer because we you can imagine mm-hmm. the amount of personal information that we have on our companies and our cu- customers cannot use that without the permission of the customer. It's, it's, but but it, I mean, do, do they do that? I mean, you, you know, yes, many people, whether it's Facebook, and I'm talking social media, uh, Facebook, WhatsApp, and, and you often get people like, ah, do you know they know everything about you? Yet, I mean, I've, I've read some of your things, and, and you say the obvious that, you know, marketing today is all about data-driven insights. So where, where do you get the data from? Absolutely. The data-driven insights where the consumer or the organization has given permission. I think that is the key. Uh, We have, I mean, in our organization, we have very, very strict rules on what we can do and we can't do with private information, how we collect private information. I would say any marketers who are there on the call, even if you do not have a law like GDPR, there's an ethical responsibility for marketers who are very often at the forefront of collecting personal Mm -hmm. information to use that in uh, in an ethical way. So... You know, I, I think this is something that uh, governments, organizations, people really need to take very seriously. If you're a consumer, who you provide that data to, and if you're a marketer, what do you do with that data that you have and how to use it in a… And as we get to like a minute to go, and what, sure. what, what, what is it like for you marketing a, a global brand? I know you touched on the, the local markets, but I mean, I'm just talking of the actual feel of marketing a global brand. So first, it's, an, it's a source of pride. You know, as you said, when you walk in a room, you hand somebody a business card and you say Microsoft and they go, wow, what a great company. Uh, I've been privileged to work for four very large multinationals in my career, all of them having a similar wealth factor, none quite as much as Microsoft. But it, it, it is a sort it's a sense of pride. Um, however, there's also a very deep sense of responsibility to protect the brand, protect the reputation of the company, uh, and particularly as marketers where you what we do impacts the reputation, how people feel about the company uh, and whether they will trust us to um, trust their data with us, trust their business with us as they go through a digital transformation journey to partner with us. So it's a sense of pride. It's a, also a sense of deep responsibility. Okay. And, and in, in the last 30 seconds then, for, for, for anybody listening in and trying to understand 
all those concepts around technology uh, that we've just touched on. I mean, wh- what should they take out? If, if there's one thing they need to take out, is what? That the, this age that we're entering, this fourth industrial revolution, this period of tech intensity, is not reversing. What we hope, though, is that it, it enhances people's lives, helps uh, lift people out of the situation maybe they're in, if they're in a tough situation, that actually can be a, a net gain for society, for communities, uh, but it's not going away, and I would encourage everyone to embrace it, no matter what your function, whether you're in HR, finance, marketing. If you're a guy who works out on the street doing a, a blue-collar job, the technology is not going away. Wow. Embrace it. That's a good point. Uh, Pete de, de Benedictus, or Peter de Benedictus, thanks for your time. Great chatting to you. Feel free, by the way, to use technology and tweet some of the things you've said, uh, amplify them, and even some things you haven't quite said. If you want to do that, we will certainly retweet it tonight, tomorrow morning. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Absolutely. Lots of learning. Absolutely. Chief Marketing Officer for Microsoft in the Middle East and Africa region, uh, Peter De Benedictus. Thank you. Our big hitter for the night. We talk about a big country, the largest oil reserves in the world, and it's not in the Middle East, and they have problems. We'll get to that in a second. Let's get the news now. It's just gone nine o'clock.